Welcome to the Freedom Formula for Physicians podcast, where it's all about slashing your debt, slashing your taxes, and creating a liberated lifestyle. And now, your host, who met his wife while training for the 400 meters in Seattle and is eating gluten-free while lusting after bread, Dave Denniston. Hello, my friends. This is Dave Denniston, and welcome back to the Freedom Formula for Physicians podcast. This is a podcast dedicated to helping doctors just like you slash your debt, slash your taxes, and live a liberated lifestyle. Oh, well, my friends, I just want to say I've loved connecting with so many of you, the emails and the uh, phone calls and people who have bought my books. So I just want to say thank you so, so much for listening to this podcast, spending a busy, busy time out of your compressed schedule to tune in here. And I have to tell you, we now have over 13,000 downloads by the time this podcast comes out. So again, thank you from the bottom of my heart for listening, tuning in. And I just want to encourage you, hey, connect, reach out to me. I love hearing from you. One of the places that I am on is LinkedIn. So if you happen to go to LinkedIn, look for David Denniston, comma, CFA. So I'd love to connect with my audience. Uh, if you go to drfreedompodcast.com, I have my personal Facebook page linked on there on the right-hand bar as well as the LinkedIn. So reach out. Say hey. If you are a physician and you love listening to this podcast. And also, I just want to do a few quick shout outs here. On iTunes, one of the most important things for the podcast is to get reviews. So I'd like to thank Jeff Wandering, Sexy Nerds Are Us, Janet E. Johnson, Glenn Livingston, TBW3406, Mark McAllister, Jesse, JK, and Jimmer. Every single one of you uh, means so much to get comments like that on the podcast, and I would love to ask each one of you that are listening to do that as well so we can get to know more and more people, get more and more downloads. And here in a moment, my friends, we are going to have a conversation, a fireside chat with a physician. This was a person that I was connected with on LinkedIn, and I think I had, had wished him a happy birthday or something of that nature, and we started a, a great conversation between the two of us. And next thing you know, we hop on the phone, or actually it was on the, the computer, and we recorded the conversation. And this gentleman, he is so special. He is a physician. He is a neurologist who started with the military and had a long career there for about 20 years. Then he moved to private practice where he had some big pitfalls and things that really caused him to lose a little bit of hair and sleep. And now he's actually looking to start his own practice rather than working for someone else. But in the meantime, he's doing locums full time. So it's a really great journey. I know you're going to enjoy these stories as much as I did. Altogether, we talked for like one and a half hours. And so I've cut down the content to try and be as concise as possible while still capturing his journey. So I've cut it down to about an hour. So I'm splitting this up. We're going to do about 30 minutes this week and about 30 minutes next week. And also, I'm not going to have any commercials today, so you can just roll on through it, uh, just because I enjoy this gentleman so much. Out of respect to him and him spending time with me, 
I want to make sure to honor that. So with no further ado, here is John McBurney. So tell me a little bit um, about your your background in medicine. How did you get started? What what was that journey like? Yeah, you know, sometimes I ask myself what the source of my motivation for going into medicine was really. You know, I uh, I grew up in a small town in uh, East Central Alabama, Opelika, which is next to Auburn, which is where the you know, the university where all the football and all that stuff is. Yes. And uh, I was the first person in my family to graduate from college. My parents were, were smart people, but it was, you know, in an era, as we've been talking about with the political season, where you could certainly make a, a reasonable middle-class living with a limited amount of education. So while my father went to college, he never finished. I think I came along and kind of derailed his uh, educational plans. Uh, and, and I would think growing up in that small town that I just saw physicians as the main exemplars or role models that I would want to emulate. There weren't, I, you know, I was mm. never around attorneys. I was never around you know, really successful entrepreneurial class people. In fact, I, I don't think the word entrepreneur was even in the lexicon back <laughs> in the 60s. Uh, it's certainly not in uh, Opelika, Alabama. Uh, <laughs> so, so, you know, you'd, but you certainly go to the doctor and, you know, the doctor would be the most powerful, um, most accomplished person in the community by a wide margin, you know. So I said, well, I want to be like that. And you know, I was pretty good student, and uh, anyway, I I uh, I worked my way through through Auburn uh, as a, a nursing assistant or an orderly in the hospital there in my hometown, the same hospital that I was born in. In fact, now called East Alabama Medical Center, it was called Lee County Hospital back then, and uh, made a lot of contacts with physicians there came under the influence of some really, really accomplished uh, physicians uh, who were all uh, alumni of uh, Emory University, which mm. was so, Emory was definitely a, a, a reach for me when I applied to medical school, uh, but I, I got in having no idea how I would pay for it, and uh, back then it was pretty easy to get a, a military scholarship to go to medical school, so uh, I got a health profession scholarship program, uh, full ride uh, scholarship to go to, to Emory. So I, I graduated from Emory without any without any debt, and I graduated from Auburn because wow. I worked my way through without any student loan debt. Mm. And and um, but was, then, was that was was that uncommon, John? You know, as you were growing up there, that or was it was it common just because costs were low enough that you could get away without debt at that time. Yeah, I think costs were quite a bit lower, especially at a place like, at a place like Auburn. I think when I started at Auburn, uh, the tuition was a flat fee. It wasn't by hour. And if I remember correctly, and I'm not 100% sure that I do, but I think it was $400 a quarter for tuition. Mm. And books were relatively inexpensive, especially if you bought used books. So, um, 
you know, I could, I could make my, you know, minimum wage job and, you know, a few twenties pass from grandparents and my parents when they could help me, uh, you know, I was able somehow to just, you know, make it. I, I don't know. I don't understand how it worked. Honestly, I, I think back on it. It seems like if somebody described that that's how they were going to do it, I would describe it as a pretty shaky proposition, you know? So but, what, what do you, what do you make of today then? Where, you know, we, we have so many physicians coming out with 200, 250, I mean, literally a mortgage. Yeah, it's horrible. Uh, it's horrible. And, and in fact, I think that it's one of the real causes or contributors to the uh, epidemic of physician distress and the epidemic of suicides among young physicians and that they are absolutely trapped. If they get partway in and decide, hey, you know, this isn't really what I thought it was going to be. It isn't what I want to do. They have this gigantic, non-dischargeable debt. And I've gotten involved through, you know, moveon.org and different organizations to, to lobby for some, you know, student debt uh, relief at a legislative level. I, I really think that under some circumstances that uh, student loan debt needs to be uh, forgivable in bankruptcy. You know, if somebody says, yes. you know, I just want to go teach elementary school or, or I want to go work in a bike shop or, you know, I just need to go uh, just sort of stare at the, you know, the na at my navel and, and meditate for a while to, to preserve what's left of my sanity, they need to be able to make that choice. That would not be an easy choice, but they still they need to. And, you know, it's really bad for physicians, but it's not unique. I, I think that um, another group that is really getting crushed by debt are veterinarians. Because mm. they're only making eighty, ninety, a hundred thousand dollars max, maybe. And yeah. The, not and, the, and the offshore vet schools that a lot of them are, are being forced to go to because there just aren't that many slots in the U.S. are, are unbelievably expensive. They're unbelievable. I mean, I've, I've read, you know, things of, you know, graduates from uh, these offshore Caribbean veterinary colleges coming out with half a million dollars of debt. Mm. Do, you, do you think growing up was, what kind of like attitude did, did you have about money? Was, was being debt free something that, that was important to you, um, instilled in you growing up? You know, what, what was that? journey of, of growing up in Alabama like um, as, as you started thinking about money and money decisions? You know, uh, I think one of the real weaknesses of my upbringing is that, that there was enough scarcity that uh, money wasn't something that I developed a very significant relationship with because there just wasn't any. Mm. You know, so uh, I definitely went through a period of time where I... And, and to a degree still treat money uh, maybe less intelligently than I could or should, um, hmm. you know, uh, but, um, but in contrast to a lot of my peers, I think I've been able to, you know, partly because, you know, for 20 years I was in the Army and, and I wasn't making the, the big bucks when it was still an era where physicians made you know, obscene amounts of money. Uh, so I, I sort of avoided that trap. 
Now this this is interesting. Let, let's talk about the um, the army for a little bit. So so I'm, I'm following your journey. You you start out in Alabama. You're idolizing physicians. You see them as as someone that that you want to aspire to be. You go to your undergrad. You go to medical school. When does the army fit into this picture? Yeah. So so uh, as a health professions scholarship program or HPSB student you're kind of owned by the military. So you don't apply for residency through the match. You apply through the military programs. And so um, uh, it's a completely separate thing. And so I, I wound up getting uh, selected initially for psychiatry internship at Walter Reed in D.C. Mm. And then I switched to neurology about halfway through my, uh, my uh, internship. And decided I wanted to be a neurologist, partly, partly just because I wasn't. I'd done an elective at Emory that was really a, an amazing elective. I, as a senior student, I had two, two patients in uh, weekly, one hour a week for each of them, insight-oriented psychotherapy as a student. And then I had an hour of supervision with a young psychiatrist who ran the drug and alcohol program at... Uh, the VA and Decatur, and was himself uh, training to be a psychoanalyst. He would fly up to, to New York, to Columbia University to get supervision a couple of times a month. And so I, I had this experience that was unique. I, I doubt that there was anywhere in the country that offered you know, students that kind of latitude. And I would be surprised if they still offer that uh, at Emory, quite honestly. Um, but uh, by the end of that senior year, I was beginning to have doubts that I just wanted to do that for the rest of my life. Mm. And so I'd done a lot of neurology uh, as, a, as a student, uh, anticipating that a psychiatrist would be, need to be well-versed in neurology. So I showed up to, uh, you know, I showed up to uh, Walter Reed and started, actually started my internship on neurology and uh, I knew a lot more than most of the first-year neurology residents did. They were just starting their residencies, and so I got a lot of strokes and you know, just really kind of had a good time and uh, infuriated the psychiatry department when I, when I flipped. <laughs> I decommitted uh, and signed with a different team. Uh, so hmm. anyway, so I did my, um, my internship and then my three years of residency at Walter Reed and then uh, was assigned as a solo neurologist in a, in a community hospital at Fort Benning, Georgia, with big, big uh, training facility, the infantry centers there, the ranger schools there. Yes. Well, let me just interrupt you there yeah. first. Let me just interrupt you for, for a second. Let me just say, first of all, thank you for your service, okay. I think. Um, I was, I was obviously... there during the great peace. I really was. At the end of my mm. time in the military was the first Persian Gulf War, and we and we were all expecting the worst, and everybody was shipping out. And well, I, I would like to um, step back for yeah. a second. There's something that I didn't capture here. Here you, you served all this time. Uh, I didn't capture why you decided to go for the military um, option. You know, as you were evaluating, like how did that that decision come about? Yeah. So I, you know, I was really proud and excited. I'd gotten into Emory. Uh, I was horrified at the cost. I made an appointment with a financial aid director at uh, Emory University 
I didn't really understand how, how financial aid worked in mm. that, you know, there was really no financial aid available to me at Auburn. It wasn't that I rejected uh, financial aid. Back then, there just wasn't any. There were, you know, there weren't these federally guaranteed or federal student loans. There weren't Pell Grants. You know, mm. you just, you know, you could either get private sources of loans or you just had to have the money. And so I had no idea how I was going to come up with, I think the tuition at Emory then was a, a little under 10000 a year, which sounds like such a joke now. But uh, I, I was terrified. I had no idea how I was going to be able to do that. I was weighing offers at state schools and where it would have been a lot less expensive. And I met with this guy and he basically treated me like an interloper. He treated me like a complete unworthy human being because I was even having to, you know, try to understand how financial aid worked. And he just sort of blew me off. And um, so at the same time, back then, the, the, the scholarships are extremely, com military scholarships are extremely competitive now. Uh, and uh, back then, the military was begging for people to even consider, you know, applying for their programs. And so this army recruiter just made it super easy. And the next mm. thing I know, I'm all accept[d] and I get books tuition and $400 a month, uh, non-taxable stipend. Uh, cause this was at, this was at the height of the Vietnam war, I, I'm guessing. No, it was, it was after, after Vietnam. I, I graduated from, um, from Auburn in 77. So, I just, you know, I had to register for the draft, I, the lottery rather, uh, but it ended when I was a senior in high school. So, uh, so, wow. but, but there was definitely still uh, the post-Vietnam aftertaste. There was still a lot of very, very strong anti-military sentiment. Uh, that was one of the things that I had to confront when I was in medical school and that most of the, you know, junior faculty for sure were extremely anti-military. Let me um kind of get get back yeah. to um, where where you were. So you're you're serving in in the military, um, and tell me about kind of financial decisions. Obviously, most physicians get paid less for being in the military. So how were you thinking? Because you said you served for twenty years. Wow, two decades yeah. in peacetime, but still yeah. you're serving in the military for twenty yeah. years, taking a, a relative pay cut. Uh, you're you're probably, I'm guessing, moving around the country, maybe the world. Um, how was money kind of coming into play in this journey? Yeah, so you know, uh, number one, I made a lot more as a resident than. Uh, residents typically made in civilian programs. I was a I was a captain. The four years I was on reserve status when, during medical school counted to longevity. So when I started as an intern, I was a captain over four. Uh, we got a huge, we got a 17.3% pay raise from Ronald Reagan. And so <laughs> in, you know, in the early 80s, I was making almost $40,000 a year as an intern, which wasn't bad money. Mm, that's great money. Yeah. So uh, my wife was working, and we initially rented a little house in Kensington, which is just north of uh, the district. And uh, we got 
we got uh, to thinking that we wanted to buy a house. And this was, um, you know, Paul Volcker was the head of the Fed. The interest rates were, you know, the prime rate was at 1.22% then. Uh, we got, we yes. bought a house where the developer bought down the interest rate on our mortgage to a, to a mere 12.9%. <laughs> so we were, we were house poor. And then, uh, and we, we, we lost a lot of money successively on buying and selling real estate with those, with those moves we've made. Cause you, you had to pretty much, right? I mean, you didn't have too much of a choice. Yeah, there was no, uh, we could have continued to rent and that's probably what we should have done, but we, we didn't want to do that. You know, you want to have this sense of place and that's what owning a home gives you as a sense of, of belonging, a sense of place. So we bought this townhouse out uh, in Chantilly, which is out near Dulles Airport. We convinced ourselves that the commute wouldn't be bad based on going and looking at it on the weekend, not realizing how what a nightmare it would be during rush hour. Uh, we paid, you know, an arm and a leg for, uh, for our mortgage payment. And then uh, partway into that, you know, my wife gets uh, pregnant with our, with our uh, son and she, we felt it was really important for her to be able to stay home after he was born. So, you know, we really couldn't afford the house. So we wound up, you know, basically just uh, selling it to get rid of it. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so, you know, in contrast to a lot of uh, military people like in the more combat arms where rotations are really frequent, you know, as a physician in the military, uh, at least back then, you know, you could you could sort of get to a place and stay there. I I, I was at Madigan for for nine years. That's a long yeah. time in the military. Yeah. And, and you know, I got to do a lot of neat things. I uh, we we started a neurology residency there, so I was involved with the startup of this neurology residency. Um, I that we built a brand new uh, hospital that was uh, a shell when I got there. We were still in the old World War Two era. Uh, building when I got there, but uh, we got to be involved with designing the build out of the hospital, the equipment, the diagnostic suite for the neurology program, started an epilepsy monitoring unit, a sleep, sleep lab. Uh, so that's pretty heady stuff. I mean, I, you know, 1989, my, I put in a re request to buy equipment to go into our Pro, you know, our neurodiagnostic EEG lab, sleep lab for half a million dollars. That was a lot of money back then. Mm -hmm. You know, so. Do you think, so it sounds to me as, as I'm just listening to you talk that I'm really hearing, you're getting a lot of fulfillment. Oh, yeah. Out, yeah. out of helping to build a, a whole program. And, yeah. um, and yeah. so you're, you're, you're staying around for that reason as well as I'm sure, um, dedication to the country and were, yeah, and you I, ever, were you ever entertaining at this point the, the idea of private practice or were you looking to get to the 20 years for a pension or what what's 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 conflicts are you dealing with inside as as you're evaluating financial retirement you know type decisions down the road yeah so uh you know you don't go in thinking you're going to go for 20 but you go in saying well you know, I want to do this, and you just sort of break it down into bite-sized chunks time-wise. And so the next thing you know, you get beyond some point 
where you go, gee, what, what's the annuity value of a military retirement that's 50% of your uh, base pay and has cost of living built in and it starts paying as soon as you retire in your 40s. It's a lot. Because right now, you know, I, I make about 45000 a year in military retirement pay. And I've been, I've been doing, getting that for almost 15 years. And we'll continue. Is that, did, you ever, did, did you ever think about delaying that? Was there any advantage to delaying that pension? It's not an option. Not an option. Okay. So now you could, you could, if you were in a, a strong financial position, I suppose, just, uh, just immediately um, put that into some other type of investment. But you know, you know, truth be told, we lived on it. You know, I, what I found was I, I did do some outside uh, moonlighting type of work when I was in the uh, military, and probably, you know added about uh, 30, 40% to the income that, uh, that we received through the military. And, and one thing I should say is in, in digression is w when you're in the military as a physician, you know, you're not just getting paid what uh, you know, an infantry major makes. There are all these additional uh, pays that you get. And one of the things is that the longer you sign a contract for, the bigger that money is. So that fully 50% of your compensation could be based on these, uh, there's something called a more of a medical officer retention bonus. Might wind up being 30 or $40,000 a year, depending on your specialty. So, so, so it, but that's another way it gets broken down into five-year chunks. You go, well, I really want to take this this uh, more uh, that they're offering me, and so you wind up just a, a piece at a time uh, going um, uh, along, and next thing you know, it's, like I said, I, I would think the value of that, if you were to just say, if you were going to at age 43 uh, purchase an annuity that started paying you $35,000 a year at age 43 and had cost of living built into it and survivorship for your spouse built into it, how much would that cost? Yes. That it would be, probably be at least a couple of million dollars, I would guess. I would think so. Uh, we'd have yeah. to crunch the numbers on that. That'd, that'd be an interesting exercise. And I'm sure you went through. Um, yeah, so that's, that becomes the draw. You know, it's just, uh, can I get to 20? And, and also the lure of, you know, going on to do other things. But I'll tell you, in retrospect, I feel like the best time of my entire career was the time that I was in the military. I dealt hmm. with the most honorable and ethical and reasonable people of my entire career. And honestly, uh, I feel like my post-military experience has been uh, a, a series of almost hostile, abusive encounters. Uh, I've been, wow. I, I, I could tell you some stories that would make your hair curl. You know, I could tell you stories about being in, in neurology practices where the senior partner routinely took a, a quarterly bonus of over $200,000 each. A quarterly bonus. 
So there is no ethical way that a neurologist can make a million dollars a year from clinical work. There's no way that you can do that ethically. Um, I've, I had a job where it was in a, it was in a resort type of area. Uh, it seemed like it was going to be like the answer to our dreams. It really had exactly what I thought I wanted. And um, my wife was also working with me kind of as my assistant. And the first payday came and we didn't get paid. And so I just very, you know, I, I said, I'm not going to re- react to this. I, it's probably just a, a mistake. Uh, there may have been a problem with the direct deposit routing number. Who knows? So I called the office manager and I say, wasn't it a payday? And she started sobbing and confessed hmm. that... Uh, the, what I'd been told was fraudulent, that the practice was under investigation, that, oh. uh, that money was disappearing, and that she didn't know where it was, and she couldn't make payroll. Oh, my gosh. And so, you know, we, we, we stuck around for a few more days. We got an attorney to give me some advice. Uh, ultimately resigned without giving notice uh, and then the next day actually went and sat down with a special investigator uh, for the uh, attorney general's office for Medicaid fraud and gave them tape account of what I had witnessed for four hours and then had to pick up and figure out what to do after that again because of non-competes and this this particular individual was was very uh, lawsuit happy. He uh, he actually had an attorney on retainer that he paid five thousand a month retainer uh, just Jeez. to just to harass people and intimidate people. So yeah, so I mean I've seen it. I've seen some really really bad things, and I think that you know physicians coming out of training with that uh, need to be very very discerning about what they get themselves mixed up with because people are, you know, going to any lengths fair or foul to try to preserve those big money days of medicine. And, and I think they're gone. I think that the money's decent. It's not great when you compare it to the, to the opportunity costs and to the debt load that people come out of their education with. But it's, uh, you know, it's better than most folks can aspire to. Uh, but, uh, the, the lure of when it sounds too good to be true, it's too good to be true. It probably is. So what do you think in terms of, you have your, your military experience, John, you got the, um, private practice Uh, along this path. What has been some of the best financial advice that you got and from who? Hmm. Okay, long pause. Uh, I, you know, I probably from my wife. <laughs> my wife is very frugal. She doesn't. Uh, she doesn't believe in wasting money. Uh, her her mother. Uh, her her mother and father raised two children successfully, 
on a modest amount of uh, money. Uh, my my father-in-law was a hairdresser in Atlanta. Hmm. Uh, he was very successful. You know, he, he wound up, uh, I don't know if you've seen the movie Driving Miss Daisy. Oh, yes. He actually did Miss Daisy's hair at a time that these wealthy uh, women would go to the, to the beauty parlor once a week to have their hair done. He did, he did the governor's wife, Frank Saunders' wife's hair. He, there's a large department store in Atlanta called Rich's. He did Mrs. Rich's hair. And those, and those ladies absolutely loved Mr. Charles, as he was known. Hmm. And so, you know, but, but that's, you know, that's definitely, you know, just sort of middle class uh, income. And yet when my, when my mother-in-law died, uh, she had an estate of uh, about a million dollars. Wow. And that just by pinching pennies, she was able to build up. And, uh, and I think my wife inherited that from her. And uh, so that's the reason that we have uh, any success that we have had. <laughs>